effort this morning? Yes. Go ahead, and Sister Fowler, if you would, put up the title slide. The um, Don't be fooled, though. We're still on the freedom train. Because even during worship, I thought, Lord, I really liked preaching on freedom, but this is what he put in my heart. And then I, I heard on the inside, it's still about freedom. So today, though, the title has changed. The topic's the same. And what we're going to be talking about, or really what the Holy Spirit's going to be imparting to you through the word, you realize that's what this is, right? Y'all aren't just sitting there hearing information. Y'all are sitting right next to anointed men and women of God, and you're receiving impartations. And as the word goes forth this morning, he heals and he delivers because he always sends his word to the trouble to set him free. His word is always the answer. So this morning, don't think for a moment that you're just receiving information. This is about impartation. Amen. And so what the Lord is going to give you this morning through impartation and information is the ability to be free from your environment. So we're still talking about freedom. It's not just freedom from people and freedom from the past. We need to learn how to be free from our immediate environment. Right. Because you, you heard me say this to you before, and I'll say it again before we get into the word. When your revelation becomes greater than your environment, the the, the devil loses his ability to contain you. Containment evaporates when your revelation becomes bigger than your environment. In other words, when where you are is not who you are, when you can be in the midst of a storm, but the storm not be in you. Your days of breakthrough and freedom are at hand. Amen. But when when you're in an environment and just it seeps in on the inside. In other words, if you're going through a hard time and you're immediately discouraged, you need more word inside of you. You need more words so you can be in a situation, but the situation not be in you. So we need to learn to be free from our environment, whether that environment is grand or gory. Go with me, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 30. And I want to read three verses out of Proverbs chapter 30. Is that what I said, or did I say 40? I thought I said 30. I was just seeing if you all listened. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7. And I'm going to read through to verse 9. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading in the book of Proverbs, and I came across this verse, and it just jumped out at me. Two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Verse 8, keep deception and lies far from me. Listen to this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, when you read this, I'm just going to say that this is Solomon because some people say that Agur is uh, another individual and others say Agur is, uh, Julissa, what do you call that when somebody writes under another name? Pseudonym? Alias? Lie? What is it? Ghostwriter, okay. Some people say that Solomon, for whatever reason, chose the name Agur to write some of his things, and I don't. It doesn't really much matter whether Agur was an indi- other individual or Solomon having an identity crisis. It don't matter. the The fact is that whoever wrote this, the Holy Spirit deemed it necessary to put into the Word, and that this was an observation that there are some people that never gain mastery over their environment. 
So if they become wealthy, they become full and forget God. And others, if they're in a place of poverty and misery, they get frustrated and angry and curse God. And so this morning what I want to talk to you about is the answer is not the environment. That there's another answer, that there is, there is a place you and I can be that it doesn't matter what place we're in physically, where we are doesn't become who we are. So it doesn't matter whether we're going through seasons of lack or we're going through seasons of abundance. Our character remains unchanged, our expectation unchanged, our enthusiasm for the things of God unchanged. If you and I can be influenced by our environment, do you understand how vulnerable that makes us to the devil? There have been some very anointed men and women of God. He's ruined by allowing them to be prosperous. Some people can't handle wealth. I've met them. And there are other people, you keep them poor enough, they'll just throw their hands up and walk away. Because they got their eyes on the wrong prize. And so I, I need to build this up a little bit. The actual sermon won't take long. It'll take me a few minutes, though, to... to uh, Lay the groundwork so that if this doesn't feel like it connects, trust me, it will eventually. The thing I want to say to you is this. I, I love the Bible because it always keeps it real, right? And understand this, that the Bible does not condemn the poor, nor does it applaud the wealthy. I want to say that again. The Bible does not condemn the poor, nor does it applaud the wealthy, but it gives both. The same opportunity to chase a greater prize. Okay? There is, now listen to this, because there's a huge, huge segment of the body of Christ that believes that the way to avoid greed is to be poor. And I want you to say, or understand, greed is not, greed is not the result of finally having a, a, a certain amount of money. Greed has got nothing to do with how many bills you got in your pocket. Greed is a heart matter, not a wallet matter. There are poor people that are greedy and wealthy people that are not. And there are poor people that are not greedy and wealthy people that are. It has nothing to do with economics. It has to do with character. So don't, don't, don't do what a lot. I grew up in a segment of the body that, that actually made their ministers take a vow of poverty. you got to understand that poverty is not the antidote to being the evils of wealth. Spiritual maturity is the antidote to that, but not poverty. There's no inherent nobility in poverty. I've said this to you before. Being poor does not prove your devotion. It can prove a lot of things, but devotion ain't one of them. There's no inherent nobility in poverty, but neither is there any inherent nobility in prosperity. And yet within the church, we have some who embrace poverty, believing that it inoculates them against the dangers of wealth. As I said, I, I know a preacher. He's still alive. This is one. He was one of the most anointed and talented individuals I'd ever seen. This man was Old Testament prophet. What do I mean by that? I mean, a lot of times we, we you know, thus saith the Lord, I love you. Okay, that's accurate, right? But Old Testament prophets, to me, are those ones who tell you what you did yesterday, 
where you were, what you were wearing, who you were talking to, when you were talking. I saw you on the phone sitting in a brown chair wearing orange shorts talking to Bill. When I'm in the presence, I, I immediately start doing this. I go back to my Catholic days just in case I did something I wasn't. And there are these people. And this man was one of those people. This dude had face-to-face visits with Jesus. And my wife can vouch for this. When you were in the room with him and the anointing hit him, it changed the atmosphere. There was no doubt the glory of God just walked into this place. Your skin would start like bubbling. It'd be like, oh, and you look at his eyes because he had a lazy eye, and that's what made him even crazier as a prophet. Because one eye would go up and the other eye would go down, and as soon as you saw those eyes do this, you thought, uh-oh. And he could sing, and he could play, and he could do all these things, and he was an amazing, in-depth student of the Word. And yet every time, God made him wealthy multiple times, and every time he sabotaged it. God put him in the pulpit of one of the largest churches in America at that time, and he blew it. God gave him a national television ministry back before there was the Internet. I mean, when a television ministry was a television ministry, and he sabotaged it. And I asked him one time, and I won't say his name, but I asked him one time, I said, why do you always stand on the precipice of greatness and hurt yourself, sabotage yourself? And he began to cry, tears came down his eyes. He said, son, don't be like me. He said, I'm afraid of success. He said, I've learned how to handle struggle. I don't know how to handle prosperity. And because he didn't know how to handle it, he kept sabotaging it because he thought the safety was in his poverty. As long as I'm poor, I'll stay holy. I don't know if I'll stay holy if God blesses me. So I keep doing things to keep myself here, thinking that as long as I'm here and I can't afford to sin, I'll be holy. But all that showed me was despite his talent, despite his great anointing, he lacked the character to be immune to his environment. And you and I can't, and we cannot become who God called us to be by, by not being free from where we are. Is this making sense to you? Go to Proverbs chapter 12, 10, verse 22. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22. We need to understand that God's remedy to poverty is the blessing. I want to say that again. God's remedy to poverty is the blessing. To embrace poverty, I'm not talking to endure poverty, don't get me wrong, but to embrace poverty is to deny the blessing. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes poor. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. And he adds no sorrow to it. The word rich here literally means to accumulate. It's a process that little by little you accumulate until you accumulate a lot. The blessing of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord works in such a way that that which you get doesn't leave until you've got more. See, you, you, you can make a lot of money and still be poor because it goes out faster than it comes in. If it's going out faster than it comes in, 
and you're in a constant chase to try to get more because it keeps going out, the blessing of the Lord allows it to linger until you can accumulate, and then out of your storehouse you can distribute. Hmm. But when one gains, listen to this, when one gains, I'm still laying the foundation, they face a whole new set of dangers. The poor face dangers that are inherent to poverty. But the wealthy face a whole new set of dangers. So what I'm saying to you is there is no safety or security in poverty. Neither is there any safety nor security in wealth. Because another thing you can watch by reading books and just watching people around you, wealth can be awfully fleeting. You can have it one day and it be gone the next. This is the reason why, and we'll get into it a little bit later, that when Paul was teaching his son Timothy about how to deal with people, one of the things he said, he said, instruct those who are rich in this world to not put their trust, their hope, their expectation into uncertain riches. Now, notice he did not repeat what the master said. The master said to one, everyone say one. It's amazing how people who really, if they want to find a scripture to support their preconceived doctrine, they will. And they take one time, one person, one statement, and make an entire doctrine out of it. When the master told the rich young ruler to go sell what you have and give it to the poor, they build entire lifestyles out of it. Jesus never said it to anyone else save the one. And then when Paul was given the instructions of establishing the doctrine for the New Testament church, he did not repeat that. Instead, what he said is you tell those multiple, plural, not one, but multiple, those who are rich in this world not to put their trust. He didn't say give it all away as if the security of our salvation is tied. Are y'all following me? Tied in, I'm going somewhere with this, tied into our poverty. So if you have great wealth, you've got to give it all away because you can't handle the wealth. And, and religions are built on that. And isn't it amazing that in the religious world, that if they, if they preach poverty, well, the, way, the remedy is give me what you got. Because I and I alone am holy enough to handle all your wealth. So give it to me. Religion after religion after religion does that. What does that prove? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. If you truly believe that poverty is the way, dude, then be my leader and be the poorest among us. Right? That's just like, can I meddle a little bit? They Blow yourself up and be a martyr. But you never do it. You just tell others to do it. If you really believe that there's paradise on the other side and you're going to have 70 virgins, bro, you do it first. Instead of finding a poor guy in a village and promising him you'll take care of his family for the next 50 years, you liar. I know this is going out on the Internet. I don't care. Religion will never result in the freedom of God's people. The gospel will. The word of God. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way. He's the only path to freedom. And it doesn't matter what, what moniker or placard you put on your religion, the spirit of religion is the same. just changes its branding is all it does. I'm chasing rabbits. I don't need to do that. When one gains, they face a whole new set of dangers. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10 says this, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things, everyone say good things, which you did not fill, and hewn cesterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and eat and are satisfied. Verse 12, Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. The very blessing given to us by God presents the potential to be the cause by which we forget the very God who blessed us. Hmm. As I said, I've, I've known people who could not handle prosperity. And their poverty is not by God's ordination, but by their determination. Many devoted Christians see the dangers of wealth, so they rush in the other direction, believing that poverty keeps them safe against the dangers of prosperity. And they're even willing to misquote the Apostle Paul to justify their devotion to poverty, saying the love of money is the root of all evil. But if we'll go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul actually said, for the love of money is a root, not the root. It's a root. And again, love of money is not about an economic standing. Some of the wealthiest people I've met are those devoid of the love of money. Are you listening to me? They use their wealth to be a blessing. And some of the greediest people, they my family. I know them well. They as poor as poor can be, but they would mug you to get your money. They would hurt you. And if someone will hurt you to get your money, what is that? That's the love of money. <laughs> and some, by looking at longing for it, and here's that's the key, longing for it. Longing for what? Are y'all here? Longing for money craving it, desiring it, do anything to get it. They've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. Have you ever, have you ever watched uh, people who come into sudden money that have an entourage? I remember, who, who, too legit to quit. Who was that? Dun, da, da, dun, da, da. Huh? MC Hammer. MC Hammer talked about it. He had over 400 people in his entourage. 400. Listen, when you got it, they'll help you spend it. And that's what this Bible says. There are some people when they get it, they'll come. They'll help you spend it. Entourages aren't something new. They had it back then. Those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on and watch it go away? 
Certainly wealth can, listen to this, certainly wealth can be overemphasized and cause great harm. But that's not a new thing. Paul addressed it way back in the beginning. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. Who imagine, he's talking about a certain group of people that were corrupt in their mind, and they imagine, listen to this, that godliness or righteousness is a source of profit, a money-making business, a means of livelihood, from such withdrawal. I had a young man contact me one time. He wanted to be our youth pastor. I asked him why. He said, well, I just graduated from Bible school, and I don't want to get a real job. I was like, yeah, dude, I want to hire you. There are some that think, well, you know what? I'll just do this. That way I don't have to actually work. Paul said, from such, withdraw. Let me read you the same verse out of the New. Is this okay? I'm just trying to lay the groundwork. He said, these people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt. They've turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. To pursue God for the sole purpose of becoming wealthy is as bad as to believe that to serve God requires you to be poor. Can I say that again? To pursue God for the sole purpose of becoming wealthy is as bad as to believe that to serve God requires you to be poor. Let's go ahead and get started. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. So if poverty is an unsafe place and wealth is an unsafe place, then where is our safety? Where's our security? Where's the place of immunity to where it doesn't matter what's going on around us? We remain the same. My pastor, Dave Roberson, used to share a story of a woman who raised in a very bad home married a man because he was wealthy but she discovered though he had wealth he had no ability to love and so her home life was horrific she went from bad to worse and her only refuge was her local church so every time the church doors opened she was the first one in front and center every time she was there then over the process of time her wealthy but unloving husband passed away and left her everything So suddenly, for the first time in her life, she had great wealth. And pretty soon, she was showing up a little bit later than usual. And instead of being front and center, she was off to the side and in the middle. And over a little bit more time, pretty soon, she was the last one in, first one out, back row. And then Pastor Dave said, as her cars got longer, her visits to the church got shorter. And a lot of people would say, see, 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 the money ruined her. No, it didn't. It just revealed who she was the whole time. The immunity to to where if we suddenly come into great wealth, it won't change who we are. Or we suddenly find ourselves going through a trial we wish we didn't have to go through. It won't change who we are. There is a place of security that we can go to where it's not what we're going through. Are you all following me? I'm not preaching pro-poverty and anti-prosperity because trust me. I've been broke, and God is blessing us. I like the blessing better. I like options. I I shared with you before when when my wife and I used to travel across the Atlantic all the time. There were many times they they sat us right by the toilets 
cheap seats. Cheap seats are never the most comfortable seats. I remember the first time they moved me up to first class, I was like, Sir, would you like some wine? I don't drink, but set it out here anyhow. I just want to see what it looks like. Because back there, all you give me is cold or lukewarm water. Would you like red or white? I want both. You can come pick them up in a few minutes. I just want to see what it looks like. And I didn't hear the toilet flush. It was sweet. The greatest thing about increase, the greatest thing about abundance is it provides you options. You understand what I'm saying? If you want to save some money and ride and buy the toilet, go for it. But if God has blessed you, then you can have the ability to choose. I like choice. So I'm not standing up here and telling you be poor. But what I am saying is there's a place you and I can get to that it doesn't matter what we're going through. It doesn't matter what my environment is, that I can reach a place and I can learn something in God that sets me free. So you see, you and I ought to be of such character that even if we're broken, we've got nothing. No one around you can tell. Because you still smile, you still talk faith, you're still singing songs, you, you still act like everything's okay because you know that if you're suffering, it's only temporary. You following me? Blessed, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Our safe place is the pursuit of a higher prize. It's not about embracing either poverty or wealth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. One translation says, how enriched are you when you crave righteousness? It's amazing that the master used these words, thirst and hunger, because they're two of the most primitive driving forces. And when a man is thirsty, have you ever noticed, I mean, when you're thirsty, You can't be satisfied with a good book. When you're thirsty, you got to drink. I remember one time when I was a bachelor and I came home and I was thirsty. And there were, you know, when you're a bachelor and you're you got two roommates and they're both men. Well, you're you're lacking some things. Cleanliness is one of them. Food in the refrigerator is another. Open up the refrigerator and I see a white jug. I'm thinking, pray the Lord, we got some milk. I grabbed it, and I started chugging down. I was about on the sixth chug when I realized it's a little bit thicker than it ought to be. But when you're thirsty, you think I put that thing back? No, I chugged a couple more times. Because when you're thirsty, you've got to get something to drink. And when you're hungry, Pastor, do you got a story about it? Yes, I do. I have a story. My wife and I one time were on this eating plan where you ate a little bit every two hours. Right, you know that one that fires up the inner, inner furnace? And that's wonderful to do when you're home all the time, but when you're traveling international and you're always at the airports, there was a time we were doing this, and I got to the airport, and everything in the airport was closed. There wasn't a bag of chips. There was not. I actually even love, do you remember that? I called my wife. I said, babe, I said, I'm in a bad place. I said, this thing we're doing, it done fired up the engine. I got to eat something, and there ain't nobody in here except a woman with a dog. And whenever she would walk by, I'd find myself, ooh, you look good. And I wasn't talking about the woman. 
I told my wife, I said, I, I think I'm going to attack this woman and eat her dog. I was hungry because when you're hungry, you got to get something to eat. And Jesus said, those who hunger and they thirst for righteousness, and there's none who are righteous save one. What are you saying is when you won't be satisfied with anything but God himself, when it ain't about what you're going through, it ain't about what you're wearing, it ain't about where you're living, when you've got to have him, i got to have him. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for thee. When you're like that, you have an immunity because it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you're going through because you know my God will never leave me. He'll never forsake me. I may not have this and I may not have that, but I have him. So eventually I'll have everything. Hallelujah, Father. Stay hungry. Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. Paul said this. Listen to this. Now the sermon starts. All that was foundation. I'm grateful for his word. Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter 4. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. You see those words right there? I have learned the secret. What secret, Paul? I've learned how to be abased. See, because life, life will change on you. If it's in the natural realm, it's temporary. Paul said, I've learned. I didn't always know this. Learned means to come to know. I, I've come to know something. I, I've come to know the secret of how to be abased and it not change me. And I've learned how to abound and it not alter me. I've, I've learned how to stay the same. I've learned a secret. Now, see, when I read that, I want to know, Paul, what did you know? What did you learn? Because, see, I want to be like that, too. I, I want to know how not to change just because my environment did. I, I want to know how to be that preacher who doesn't stand up here one day and tell you, oh, we're going to die if you don't give sacrificially. I want to have such security in him that you never know what my wife and I are going, are going through. And if we suddenly come into great wealth, you don't find us something out there. I'm not buying trinkets to impress. I wonder how pastor's doing. Trust me, we're doing fine. Because it has nothing to do with the circumstance or the situation. Because I've read what I'm about to teach you. I've already learned the secret. He said, I've learned the secret. I am trained in the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul, what did, you, what did you learn? Look at verse 13. Now he said, I can do all things. How, Paul? How do you do all things? Through him. That word through in the Greek is actually the word in, E-N. And it's a positional statement. It's not a trans. It's not, it's not like I'm going through what Paul is saying. I can do all things in him. I, I, I've learned that in him I'm greater than prosperity. In him I'm stronger than poverty. In him I'm greater than my environment. I've learned a secret 
The secret is Christ and Christ alone. He is the secret. It's not about the blessing. It's not about the curse. It's not about this or it's not about that. It's about Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone. See, so what I'm trying to say to you is if you'll stay hungry for his presence with a C, not presence with a T, then it doesn't matter what you're going through because the thing I long for is not more of this or less of that. What I long for, I, I, I want to know him. I want to come to know him because he's the secret. So the antidote, listen to me, saints, the antidote that brings you immunity to your environment is staying hungry for him. When you can praise the same way, no matter what you're going through, you've learned the secret. When you can worship him in the middle of a storm, when you're going through a trial and you can still lift your hands and say, God, you are great and greatly to be praised, you've learned a secret. But when your environment can rob you of your praise, then you're victimized by the simplest of changes. Everyone say, stay hungry. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Is this okay this morning? I've got a short time and a long way to go. But I guess you ought to be used to that by now. Philippians 3, verse 8. More than that, he says, I count all things to be loss. And the surpassing value of knowing. Everyone say knowing. Of knowing Christ. Notice he didn't say, I want to know about him. He said, I want to know him of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, let's look at the 10th verse in the same chapter, reading it to you out of the Amplified. Paul said, for my determined purpose is that I may know him. Well, wait a minute, Paul. Dude, you're the one who for 14 years went to Bible school and Jesus was your tutor. I mean, if anyone could say, I know him, Paul could have said, I know him. He knew him in a way Moses never knew him. He knew the resurrected Lord. He had a one-on-one -on -one school. Can you imagine? I, I mean, I, I had Brother Hagen as a man. He was my Bible school teacher. He was good, but he wasn't Jesus. Can you imagine going to Bible school every day, and you have one teacher, one student, one-on-one -on -one time with the resurrected Lord? And yet Paul, even years after that, said, I want to know him. See, Paul, Paul had been shipwrecked. Paul had been beaten. Paul had been praised. Paul had been applauded. But he said, in all these things, it doesn't much matter about all those things. See, because their criticism don't tear me down and their praise don't lift me up. Because I have one predetermined, all-consuming drive. I want to know him. My question, church, is this. Are we hungry? Or are we too easily distracted? Have we become trinket-focused instead of Christ-centered? See, one day I'm going to preach a message on counterfeits, because here's the deal. If, you'll, if you can be fooled with a counterfeit, you will be. And can I say this to you? Prosperity can be a counterfeit. So can pros or poverty. See, we have one prize, 
And that ain't about him. That is him. Paul said that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understand the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. Paul was hungry, man. Or should I say hungry jack? And that I may in the same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection which exerts it, which it exerts over believers and that I may so share his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, even to his death in the hope. Paul was fixated on Jesus like a hungry man in an airport fixated on a dog. Paul was hungry. I pray that we are, too. If we're not fixated and hungry, we're vulnerable to falling away. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14 says this, I press on. I press on toward the goal. Everyone say the goal. This dawned on me this week, Cleve. He didn't say a goal. See, because over the years I've heard preachers talk about this prize, and they talk about it's his apostleship. It's about finally achieving that which he was called to do. And that's good, but it ain't right. And others would say it was he pressed on so he might win the entire Gentile world. The winning of souls is good, but it ain't right. You see, because if I'm an apostle and apostleship is my prize, then my prize is different than you in this verse through the wonder of the Holy Spirit, who's the perfect teacher, would say I press on toward my prize or I press on toward a prize. But he said, I press on toward the prize, singular. There's one. No matter where you are in life, whether you're male or female, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter where you come from, there's one prize. If we're believers in Christ, everyone say one prize. There's only one prize that we all press on to. It's not about pressing on to fame. It's not about pressing on to fortune. It's not about pressing on to where they'll finally give you that title you so long for. No, there's one prize. And Paul said, I press through every obstacle. I press through every environment. I press through every storm. I press through every opponent toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want to submit to you that the prize was Jesus himself. You see, and if we'll stay hungry for his presence, doesn't the Bible say fixing our eyes on Jesus? That word fixing our eyes, you know what it means? It literally means this, to focus on one thing at the expense of all other things. If you're looking at a bunch of things, you ain't focused. Does that make sense? If, if, if I'm focused on one thing, and I know I preached similar along this a long time ago, and I brought in a rifle scope. Y'all remember that? If you're looking through a rifle scope, everything else is blurry. If you've got it zoomed in on one thing, that's all you're seeing. And everything else blurs away, so you focus on the one thing at the expense of all other things. And the Bible tells us, listen, the way you're going to walk on water, do you all remember Peter? Peter lost focus. And when he lost focus, he lost ability. When he lost ability, he sank over that which he had previously been walking on top of. Jesus did not ordain him to sink. He sank because he lost focus. What did he lose focus on? 
he began to look at the waves and he began to hear the wind and he lost focus and when he lost focus he sank can i tell you listen you can walk atop your storm now y'all ain't even listening to me all right amen let's go home you, listen, your storm doesn't need to drag you down. You don't have to go below the waves. You don't have to struggle to swim. You can walk atop. There's a reason why that story is in the Bible. And it's not so we can be in awe of Peter. That's in there to let us know there's a principle in life. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Focus only on him, his word, his person, and you will walk atop your storm. It doesn't matter what you're going through. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Oh, I promise you the devil will give you a thousand distractions. Look over here. Hey, look over here. Look over here. But you and I need to be singular in focus. We look at one at the, to the expense of all other things, and when we're looking at him, he'll see us through. Stay hungry. Stay hungry. One translation says of verse 14, chapter 3, I run straight to the divine invitation of reaching the heavenly goal. <sighs> Let's go ahead and go there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. And we'll bring this to a close. Fixing our eyes. Everyone say fixing. I think one of the great problems in the church is we've been distracted by so many things. Pastor, are you saying I ought not to be blessed? Have you listened to anything I said? You don't have to chase the blessing. Because if I read my Bible properly, Steve, the blessing will chase me. I mean, if I read it correctly, then when I wake up, it's waiting on me. And I don't have to pursue it at the expense of pursuing him. Because when I get him, I get everything that he holds in his right and his left hand. And so I focus on his presence with a C. That's what I seek more than anything else, understanding that if I keep my eyes focused on him, he's the one thing the devil can't counterfeit. There is no counterfeit to Jesus. And so I fixate my eyes on him. I fixate my heart on him. This is, this, is, this, is, this is an exercise we have to renew constantly. We've got to discipline ourselves to be like this because life is filled with distractions. And there's a great many things that we could do. But what we need to do is set ourselves at his feet and say, Lord, you and you alone have the words of life. Where else can I go? Where can I go to hear what you got to say? Where else can I go to have somebody stimulate and invigorate and make alive my spirit? Where else can I go to have someone speak life to me? There's nowhere else I can go. There's, and if you don't go, I ain't leaving. And if you go, I ain't staying. Wherever you go, that's where I'm going. I'm, I'm going to follow you. My eyes are fixated on you. If you go to the left, I'm going to the left. If you go to the right, I'm going to the right. But you ain't going to lose me. Are we hungry? If we're hungry, we'll get it all. But it won't get us. Hmm. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. 
who's the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So guess where you find him? If you're fixing your eyes on him, he ain't on the cross now. He's no longer the crucified one. He's the resurrected one. Seated in power and authority. So you fix your eyes on the throne. Where is it that we go in a time of trouble to obtain the help we need? To the throne. Listen to this. Romans chapter 8 verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Boy, we could camp out on that one for a long time. Do you know what heaven's goal is for you? Christ likeness. The thing that God is most seeking. One of my mentors always said, God is always preparing you for that which he has prepared for you. And most of the time we assimilate that as he's preparing me for a job, a task, a place. And that's true. But what God has prepared for you is to be a joint heir, seated with Christ, to be just like Christ. So allow me to say this, and I am trying to bring this into a close. God's greatest hope, his loftiest desire for you and for me, is that one day we will stand in the complete image of his son. That's what heaven's trying to work out in us. See, this, what, it ain't about the stuff, it's about who you are. And what God, what heaven longs for is that one day you'll look in the mirror and you won't look like you no more. You'll be shocked by the image you see because where you used to see one who was pained and one who was birthed in pain, suddenly you'll see one who is blessed and it'll be, you just kind of take it. I remember the first time I met Mother Edwards, at least I think I, Deborah had said the same thing. You looked into her eyes and I, I, remember, I said, I see Jesus in you. I didn't know who she was. I just, and you looked in her eyes and it was like, I want to be like this woman. There's Jesus in there. I can see Jesus in there. And that's what God is wanting to do for each and every one of us so that when someone looks in our eyes, they say, I want, I see Jesus in you. I, I want to be like you. How'd you get like that? Because the, to behold is to become. And when we fix our eyes on him and him alone, through the process of time, we'll become like him. And no one will even know everything you went through because what you went through it fades away compared to the value of being like him. One more verse. And then I'll let you go. Psalm 73, verse 25. As I read this, would you stand to your feet? That'll help me know. Don't continue. Because when you're standing on your feet, you're just a half a step away from the door. If you're seated, I think I got more time. Hmm? I love y'all. Thank you for letting me be goofy. I used to try to be professional, and it was a lot of work. <laughs> Psalm 73, verse 25. 
whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. Of all the wonderful things in heaven, this is what the psalmist is saying. Amen. I have no greater desire in heaven but to see you. And I have no one on earth I love as much as you. Let's pray together. Can I have my prayer team come forward? If you need prayer this morning, I'm, we're going to pray collectively, but if you need prayer afterwards, please don't leave here without receiving prayer. Prayer literally does change things. And I beg you, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't leave here without him in your heart. These are crazy times, and if you've ever needed Jesus, you need Jesus right now. This is the day of salvation. And so you can come up here, and you don't have to make a big scene of it. You can just, I, I just, I, I need Jesus, man. And we'll pray with you. But collectively, let's pray this. Father, I repent for having been so easily distracted. But I renew within myself the focus of my salvation. I want you. I want to know you. I want to know you the way Paul knew you. I want to know you even as you know me. You're my focus. You're my hope. You're my desire. And I gladly lay everything else aside. Because to know you is the greatest, most valuable thing in life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Go ahead and give the Lord a hand clap of praise. If you need prayer, come forward. If you don't need prayer this morning, you are dismissed to go in the grace and the goodness of God. Amen. We love you. God bless you.